Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading, I'll conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. The kids can make their way to their classrooms. They're already doing so. If you uh, are just dropping in for the first time in a few weeks, we are in a series through the, uh, we're calling it volume one of Revelation. So buckle up, glad you're here, and you're jumping in right at the end of uh, the scriptures here in the book of Revelation. But we've been looking in this first volume through the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches. And we believe that there is a word for these particular churches, uh, real churches in real space and time. And there are also truths and things for us to glean from these seven churches uh, throughout all time and in our time as well. So this morning, I want to begin uh, with a little bit of a, uh, just an imagination, if you will. Let's, uh, let's imagine for a second that you are the mailman. You are the mailman. Is, are there any mailmen in the room? We need to get a mailman to come to the King's Church. But try to track with me for a second. Imagine that you're a mailman in John's day. John receives the revelation. He binds it up in a book or scroll, and then he hands it to the mailman. The mailman is then tasked with circulating this letter to these seven churches. He begins, he sets off from the Isle of Patmos in the dinghy, off the Isle of Patmos. Here we go. He's on the dinghy. 
He then makes his way to Ephesus, and he starts this circular route. He moves northward, and he passes through Smyrna and Pergamum, and then he turns southeast to Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, and finally, full circle, he comes to Laodicea, the church we're going to consider this morning. In each city, the revelation of John would have been read out loud. So by this time, the mailman has heard over and over and over again the words to the churches. You make it through six of these churches and you think, okay, can there possibly be anything else left to say to the churches? But yes, there is. He would hear that in Ephesus, they were zealous for theological purity, and yet they were growing cold and indifferent toward one another. In Smyrna, they were racked with poverty due to persecution and suffering, yet they were standing firm. In Pergamum, they were full of love and compassion, but in danger of theological and moral compromise. In Thyatira, they were just the epitome of growth and development, but overly tolerant of false teaching. In Sardis, they were known to be alive, but in reality, they were dead. Philadelphia, the small and seemingly insignificant church, was faithful and enduring. And so by the time you make it through, you think, okay, what, what, it can't possibly get worse than Sardis, but it also can't get better than Philadelphia. What is the seventh church going uh, to hear? So although that the church in Sardis was uh, called dead, there is a part in the text that says that there is actually a small remnant. And here in Laodicea, this is the only church where there is absolutely nothing positive to say. No evidence is found in the church at Laodicea of passion or vitality. Laodicea was a very wealthy city with a very wealthy congregation, and their wealth and their affluence had led to apathy. They were apathetic. They stopped relying on God, which is a great temptation for us as well. As I was reflecting on this church, there are so many striking similarities to the American church, to the Western church, even to a church like ours, where wealth and affluence is just everywhere the temptation can be to turn our backs on God. So Jesus himself is sending out the report card to the churches through the mailman, okay? The report card uh, always made me nervous as a kid. Always made me nervous. My mom's here. She can testify. She can testify with an amen. And I was nervous because I knew what was going to be on that report card. And it wasn't going to be pretty, okay? It was going to tell my parents that although I had been telling them A's and B's are on the way, that really C's and D's were going to be on that report card. And then when the C's and D's arrived, I was in hot water. I was grounded, uh, put on, uh, you know, home arrest, had an ankle bracelet until those uh, grades got up. But what my parents needed to realize is that I knew C's got degrees. I knew that. See, I knew what was going to be on that report card. Laodicea was blindsided by what came on the report card. They thought they were doing real well. They were self-sufficient. 
They were self-satisfied, but it turned out that they were very self-deceived. Even though there is no correction in this letter for doctrinal error, this church receives the most stinging rebuke. Jesus says they're wretched, poor, pitiable, and blind. That this church makes him want to vomit, makes him want to vomit. So what could be so repulsive that Jesus wants to vomit this church right up? The problem wasn't the right words. The problem was the right worship. Jesus hates arrogance and pride. Arrogance breeds apathy. And there's an invitation for us all here this morning. So our main idea is this. Jesus calls the apathetic to repent and become zealous again. Jesus calls the apathetic to repent and become zealous again. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father in heaven, there are areas of our lives where we are apathetic, Father, where we are lukewarm. Father, show us those this morning. Convict us of our sin and remind us of our Savior. Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us by your Spirit, for your glory and our good always. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's start cooking. The first point this morning is the amen speaks. The amen speaks. Starting in verse 14, it says this. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Who were these Laodiceans? Well, we've already hinted at a couple things, but let me just paint a little historical sketch for you. Laodicea was six miles south of Hierapolis and 11 miles west of Colossae. So these are two major trade routes that converged on Laodicea. And because they converged on Laodicea, Laodicea had the money. They had a lot of money. They were known for the production of textiles. Even to this very day, in modern day Turkey, you go over there, textiles. They had them. You need a textile. You go to Laodicea. They got the textiles, okay? They were also known as a banking center. Because they had the money, they had the banks. They had banks, big banks. They had one of the finest medical colleges in all of Asia Minor. They actually developed this Phrygian, it's called Phrygian, eye, or Phrygian powder, which is the eye salve. Salve, did I say that right, Emily? Salve, is that what we agreed upon? Salve. It's a salve. That is a Phrygian powder, and it was on a slow or a cure blindness. So they had medical security, they had financial security, and they also had their fashion security and their rugs secure. Okay? Awesome. And Jesus is an amazing, amazing preacher because he speaks to them in ways that they would understand. That's what good preaching is. It's taking the truths of God's word and applying them to the hearts of the people in language and ways that they would comprehend and understand. And that's what Jesus is doing. They also were very accomplished. They built stadiums and spas. I don't know what that spa like, hot rocks and water. It's incredible. But this city, as great as it was in 60 AD, was destroyed by an earthquake, okay? And most cities would reach out to Rome and they'd say, hey, Rome, we need a bailout. 
We need a bailout. Our city was destroyed. Can you help us rebuild? But not in Laodicea. Laodicea prided themselves on the reality that they didn't need a cent from Rome. They could do it themselves. We got this. We're going to rebuild for ourselves. A Roman historian named Tacitus wrote this. He said, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of their own resources with no help from us. The city said, we don't need Rome. And the church had become so much like the city that they said they no longer needed God. But if we're honest, it is so hard and tempting for us to do the exact same thing. It's not an easy thing to bank all of our hope on Christ. See, our souls long for that type of security. They long for something immovable, something concrete, something with clarity. When we're seeking direction in the life and we're hoping for clarity, that's what we're hoping for. Something that we can bank on. We want something to believe in that is truly true. But most of the time, we're looking in all the wrong places, and we're putting our hope in all the wrong people to try and convince ourselves that if we just had the right financial plan, medical treatment, or relational attainment, we would finally and forever solve our problem. But our text begins by reminding us of where we can actually go to find this, which is the solid rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand, the old hymn says, all other ground, all other ground, Sinking sand, sinking sand. When I need confirmation of God's word, when you need confirmation of God's word, we turn to Jesus himself. Revelation 3, 14 says, he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. First, the amen. This is the only time in the Bible where amen is used as a, as a definite article than a noun. The amen, the amen. He is the amen for all the promises of God find their yes in him. He's right. Amen is another way of saying, that's right. That's why we say at the end of it, it'd be funny if we all stopped saying amen and said, that's right. In Jesus' name, that's right. That's right. Hmm. He is right. He alone is right. You can rely on his word. Yahweh is the God of truth. All of Jesus' words you can bank on. You can bank on. Every day you read the Bible, he is speaking to you. He is speaking. And he is the amen. Secondly, he's the faithful and true witness. Proverbs 26 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find? We have found the man. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the faithful and true A commentator paints a picture like this. He says this, try to imagine a person who always honors his commitments, is never duplicitous or misleading or evasive in what he says, follows through on every promise, never fails to carry through on every obligation, passionately observes every law, is never wrong in his opinions, never wrong in his opinions, knows when to speak and when to remain silent, carefully avoids unedifying conversations, refuses to gossip, will always tell you what is most needful for your soul, and will never utter so much as one syllable that might prove destructive or harmful. Got it framed up? That's Jesus. That is Jesus. 
Has Jesus, the faithful and true witness, promised forgiveness of sins to those who repent? Have you repented? You are forgiven. Done. Has Jesus, the faithful and true witness, declared that he will never leave or forsake you? Then rest assured, he is with you now. Has Jesus, the faithful and true witness, revealed that he will cause everything to work together for good for those he loves and calls according to his purpose? Then you can be sure that the mess of your life, the chaos around you, is working together according to his plan and purpose. He only has plan A for you. It's his plan A. You can trust him. But then thirdly, he says that he's the beginning of God's creation. Now, we're not going to go down the rabbit trail I want to go down with church history. This is not saying that, God, that Jesus was created. That's an Arian heresy that has been bootlegged and kicked out long ago. What this is saying is that he is the firstborn, meaning preeminent one of all creation. Colossians 1, Colossians, again, was in Phrygia, right? Is, is, and they're told in Colossians to circulate this letter to Laodicea. Laodicea was very familiar that he is the firstborn of all creation, and he's saying here, he is that firstborn of all creation. Not only is he the amen that speaks true, but he is the firstborn of all creation that has the power to see it through. That is Jesus. Jesus is the one. Colossians 1, 15 to 18 is where this comes from. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Are you getting the picture of who we're talking about? This is not someone who is, who is unable to affect the change in us, who's unable to follow through on his word. Have you heard the words of Jesus? Take them to the bank. Take them to the bank. This is precisely the, the word the church at Laodicea needed because they had begun hedging their bets. Hedging their bets. So we'll look at the confrontation here. So Jesus confronts the church, starting in verse 15. This is the lukewarm are confronted. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. When I was in college, this verse was like circulating and percolating. The lukewarm. I'm going to get spit out. Lukewarm. Maybe you've heard this. And it's a very common verse. And some have interpreted this to mean that Jesus would rather you just not even be a Christian than to be a Christian, but not too excited about him. Not too zealous, not too overly passionate. But I don't think that the context of the verse allows us to do that for a couple reasons, okay? We have to ask the question hermeneutically, which means interpretively, how would the original audience have heard this word? How would they have heard it? Laodicea, we already said it, was surrounded by Hierapolis, six miles to the north, and Colossae. Hierapolis is known for hot springs. Hot springs. Sounds nice. Hot springs. And Colossae was known for the coldness of their water. Okay? 
See, Laodicea had it all. They had it all, but the one thing they lacked was a good water source. They didn't have good water. And what they wanted more than anything was good water. Now, the church was neither providing hot water, they weren't providing any type of healing to those in need, and cold water, they weren't providing any type of refreshment to those who were in need. They were right here in the lukewarm and worthless water. They would have immediately picked up on this because by the time the waters got piped in from Hierapolis and those hot springs and made its way through the pipes, which if you've got an archaeology Bible, you can see that it's got like, you know, we found these digs, it's crazy. But the water comes piped through these hot springs and by the time it goes through the pipe into Laodicea, it is rotten water that is lukewarm. They would have tried to drink that many times and just spit it completely out of their mouth because it is useless. Both cold and hot water have uses. I mean, hot tubs, am I right? The good old jacuz? Or we live in Florida, which is also known to some as the face of the sun. From time to time in the summer, I need to jump myself into a cold pool. I do not need a hot tub in the middle of summer. Both of these things have uses, but the lukewarm, disgusting water of Laosia had no use. It was worthless. They're not doing anything. This church is apathetic. It has no use. It's because of what they were thinking about themselves. They thought to themselves, we have no need. The first thing that it points on is that they are rich. Now, I don't want us to get it twisted. There's nothing wrong with wealth. Almost every figure in the Old Testament that we see was very affluent. It's possible to be righteous and wealthy. But I do think that there is a connection. I mean, for heaven's sakes, on our bills that are in some of our pockets, we probably don't carry cash. Maybe you do. It says, in God we trust. But the irony of that is the more you have, the less you trust God should sober us. We chase it. We want it. We desire it. But is the juice worth the squeeze if we end up losing God in the process? You say you are rich, but you are poor. He says five things, five indictments against the church at Laodicea. He says they're wretched. This word is used to describe devastated countries. This is not how Laodicea would view themselves. They would not view themselves as wretches. They are pitiable. Number two, they were to be pitied. They pitied others. They were not to be pitied. They were poor. They boasted of their riches. In the Greek, this phrase right here is, it says, I am rich and I have gotten riches. Like I did it. Can I just demystify something for you? Every check that's ever flowed into your bank account is from the hand of God. It is not because you work so hard or so smart. That might be a secondary cause, but even your smarts, came from God. God is the one who provides. God provides, but they thought, I am rich and I have gotten my riches. They were blind. They boasted for this eye powder. I'm gonna talk to Liz George about it afterwards. I don't know if they even still use this. I doubt they use this powder. It was, I doubt it, but we'll talk. Jesus says they're blind. They boasted for this advance, but really in reality, they were blind. 
They could not see. They were spiritually blind. And fifthly, they boasted in this wool, but they were in fact naked. They boasted in being clothed so well, but were naked. Modern day church like this may look very, very, very wealthy, adorned beautifully, but it's possible to be wealthy and good for nothing. Arrogant and condescending, self-dependent. And Jesus says, you are worthless just like your water. Just like your water. And like we've seen all through the letters in Revelation, that would be a real bad ending to a sermon. Just, okay, guys, glad you came. See you next week. But Jesus does not leave us there. Jesus does not leave us there. Not one of these letters stop after the rebuke. Jesus doesn't leave us without hope. Number three, point three, the loving reproof. We can apply this instruction to our own hearts. And these are, the, these are the words that any apathetic church needs, any lukewarm church needs. We'll look through this in a few little movements here. How does an apathetic church become zealous again? Number one, they need to see the riches of Christ. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Lukewarm Christians think they're rich, but what they really need is to turn to Christ and get what is true, truly rich. They, they were familiar with commerce and trading. And Jesus is saying, no, you actually need to come over here and trade with me. You think you need that gold, but you really need this gold. You need the riches I can supply you with that are refined. This gold is refined by Jesus himself. He's saying, forsake all your suppliers and come to me. This is a massive theme in the scriptures, the poor becoming rich. Paul says that he became poor so that we might become rich. Jesus, the king of heaven, became poor so that they might become rich. Come to me. You think, we think, we'll find satisfaction and security in wealth. It can be taken away in an instant. In an instant. All other ground is sinking sand, we said. There is an obvious paradox here because Jesus says, come and buy from me. Uh, I don't have, I don't have the resources. This seems like a really expensive thing. What do I need to barter with Jesus for this gold? And he says, the only thing you need is need itself. Need. You bring your need. Isaiah 55, 1 and 3 beautifully puts it. It says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, this is good news. This is good news. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. We don't pay him out of our resources, but from an acknowledgement of the, of the abject poverty that we are actually in. That's what we bring to the table. The price God requires is faith in him, which humbly concedes that we have nothing to bargain, nothing to bargain, nothing to trade. 
collateral for a down payment, none of it. No merit of our own. And Jesus says, come and get in on these riches. You got need? Great. Come to me. Point two, he says we need to put on the wardrobe of Christ. He says, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself uh, and, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Again, these people were producing clothing. They thought and looked around and thought we're pretty clothed. In fact, people would go around and do that little uh, label thing where they said, oh, we're clothed in some Laodicean garb. They would say that. Jesus is saying, don't put your trust in these appearances. Don't put your trust in these appearances. Jesus says that what's most important is the internal appearance. You can be dressed to the nines and in reality shamefully naked. You think you got it all, but you're naked and afraid. We need some different clothes, and Jesus has been in the clothing business since Genesis. Before the fall and our nakedness was uncovered, clothing was created. Jesus clothed Adam and Eve, and he is still clothing us. He has provided another lamb, the lamb of God, to clothe us in the garments that never wear out, that never wear out. I want to get some of those garments for my children, both in reality and spiritually. They need them both. They need them both. Those are the threads we're talking about. Those are the threads that matter. Put on Christ. Put on Christ. Third, the healing of Christ, the salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They boasted in their vision, but their vision was whack. Skewed, they could not see reality. I provide a salve. I provide and save your eyes. Come to me, come to me if you're blind, and I will give you sight. Ian prays this every single week. He prays this. He says, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel. That's what we need. That's what we need, because the ones we came into this world with were bootleg, broken, janky, Got to trade these suckers out. Jesus has to give us eyes to see. And to a church that considered itself rich, they could not see that they were poor. To a church that considered and boasted of the textile industry, our Lord is saying, you're actually naked. You can't see. To the church that boasted in this eye cream, right? He says, you actually need to buy from me the salve you need. It's not that one. It's this one. The fourth thing we see here is what motivates Jesus, the discipline of Christ. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Why does Jesus correct you and correct me? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. We live in a time where love is synonymous with 100% affirmation. If you don't affirm me completely, you obviously don't love me. And I say, if you say that, you have never had children. I love those little suckers more than anything. But they cannot run in the street. They cannot put their tongue in an electrical outlet. That is a no-no for me. Gotta draw the line somewhere. The rebuke is motivated by love. And he tells them to repent, to repent. And be zealous again. See, confession might move your lips, but, per, but repentance moves your heart. It's not just what you articulate, but what actually moves you to
to relocate. I don't know if that one works, but it rhymed. (laughs) I apologize. If you look to me, Jesus is saying, you can be zealous again. Maybe you're going through a dark night of the soul right now where it's just going on and on and you feel lukewarm and you feel apathetic. The only way out is by looking to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Be restored. Look at how much he loves you to tell you. Look how much he cares for you to suffer for you. Look at all that he is, both past, present, and future, that he has been for you, that he is for you, and he will be for you again. Repent and turn and be zealous again. And then five, we see the renewal of Christ. In verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Again, Jesus draws from imagery that would be similar. It would be familiar to the people of Laodicea. See, like I said earlier, they were at trade routes. It was a bit of a a square situation where people would come up to the gates of the city and they would knock for entrance and admission. They were looking for access. This text is often used as an evangelistic plea, but this is not an evangelistic plea, although it certainly could be. This is a plea to the church. This is a plea to the church. Uh, there's this weird tradition that has you know, really gotten a life of its own. It's called a birthday party. Okay? Now, in a birthday party, you gather people and cakes, fire, and all this stuff comes together. It's bizarre. But it is not a birthday party if the person whose birthday it is is outside. It's not until they come in that it's actually a birthday party. Laodicea had all of the cash flow. They had bought the cake. They had the candles. They were decking it all out. Balloon wall, which is wild to see made and comes down in a second. Right? But Jesus was outside, knocking at the door, knocking at the door, not barging his way in, knocking at the door. He stand and knocking and inviting the church to spiritual renewal, to intimacy once again. And he says that I will actually come in and eat with you. In the ancient world, a meal was an invitation to reconciliation. This is an invitation to renewed intimacy. We've all had those meals in our family where that was the hope and prayer. We're going to get this side of the family together with that side of the family, and hopefully we can come together and see eye to eye once again. This is the meal Jesus is inviting us into, which is just a foreshadow of the meal that we'll celebrate one day. But he says to a wayward and apathetic people, I want to collapse the distance between us and eat with you. I want to eat with you. He's like the groom in the Song of Solomon in chapter 5 that is standing at the door longing for renewed intimacy. This is our Jesus. He is knocking at the door. Point four. What is the promise? What is the reality on the other side of this? In every single letter, it gets to a point right at the end of the letter to the church where he says, you need to hear. You need to hear. Because I I think that 
he's saying that because it is a hard word for us to digest, but then also we need to hear because the promises are so good, are so good. And the promise here given in Revelation 3, 21 and 22 is mind-blowing. Just go home and meditate. Think on it. It says in 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Fifty-five times in the New Testament, throne, the word throne is used. Forty-one of them appear in Revelation. Forty-one. And I think it's coming up here as a link to chapters four and five, which will be in volume two, which are coming very soon. No one knows the day or the hour. (laughs) Right? But see, but, but see this from a biblical perspective, okay? In the Old Testament, we see so many amazing, profound images of Yahweh on his throne in judgment. And then we see in the New Testament that the Son will partake in this throne. And then here, and other places in the New Testament that we'll look at in a second, we see the saints participating in the throne. The victorious saints will participate in the throne. You will sit on a throne. Matthew 19, 28 and 30 says this, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, other words, overcome, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many, but many who are first will be last and the last first. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to, to, to the church, he says, don't you know you can work out your little disagreements because you one day will judge angels? In 2 Timothy, Paul writes that if we endure, we will also reign with him. How? How will we reign? I don't know about you, but I didn't wake up feeling very regal this morning. I woke up like blindsided by the alarm. Maybe you don't feel that way, but we do not reign on the basis of our own merit, but based on our union with the king, union with Christ. Jesus is victorious. Jesus Christ is the victor. He is the victor. This is the great motif, the great theme in the New Testament of Christus victor. He has triumphed over his enemies. Jesus is the conqueror, and we conquer in him. We overcome in him. We are one with him. We have died with him. We endure with him. We were raised with him. We are seated with him. And no one or nothing else can give you that. Nothing. Nothing else. You know where it's all heading. That is the, 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 the great theme of the book of Revelation is endure, be faithful, because you know how the story ends. You know how the story ends. 
We are not foolish for following Jesus in a world turned upside down because a crooked path always seems crazy in a world gone mad. There's a lot to be said there. We can be zealous for him. If you are in sin, repent, turn to him. He will have you. He stands at the door and knocks. He wants to close the distance between himself and us. If you are lukewarm, repent and be zealous again. And how do we know that he will receive us? Because he is the amen. He is the faithful and true, and he has promised you that. The one who became poor, that we might become rich. The one who was stripped naked, so that we might be clothed. The one who was pierced, so that we might be healed, is also the one who dines with sinners and calls us his bride. Look to him this morning for spiritual renewal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. You are faithful and true. Father, there are moments where we struggle to believe you to take you at your word. Father, I pray that those would grow increasingly few and that we would see more clearly, even this morning, that you alone are worthy of all of our trust. Father, where we struggle to believe, encourage our belief. Father, I pray that for those who hear this and say, that's me, that is me, I have grown apathetic. Father, remind them right now of your finished work on the cross for them and your invitation to be zealous again. Father, would we be known as a church that is faithfully preaching the gospel and humble, repenting of our sin, turning to Christ, clinging to Christ as we await your return. Father, be with us now as we turn to the table. Clear out the distractions in our minds and our hearts. We pray in your name, amen.